Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring the films of Dario Argento, as recommended by James McCormick of That's Not Current TV, and this week's episode, the last episode of the week of the month, and thus of the theme-slash-filmmaker, is Dario Argento's 1987 film, Opera. Now, I have two main thoughts about this film. Number one, I think this may be, of the trio of Dario Argento films that I have watched, the best and or um, uh, best directed film of the three. So of the of the three that James has uh, recommended to me, um, I think this one is the one which is the best example or most typifying of what it is to be a Dario Argento film, uh, a Dario Argento giallo, a Dario Argento horror film. Basically, um, now that I've sort of familiarized myself with the world that he plays in and the specific kind of touches that he adds to them, I think opera is the best example of what Dario Argento's essence is. But not one that I would necessarily recommend someone watch right away, or, you know, I I think I would not have arrived at this conclusion if James had recommended this one first, and then I kind of worked my way backwards, or if it was just three or, or two other films aside from this one. I sort of had to, once again, as I've said in past episodes, kind of lay or, or understand what the groundwork was before I could understand the house that Argento built. So that's one. I think it is the best directed, the most typifying or exemplary uh, exemplary film of Dare Argento. Having said that, I also... Um, this film sort of solidified for me that I Dare Argento is not for me. Um, and it's weird, uh, maybe it's weird to you at first that those two things could coexist, that I could say, hey, this is the finest example of something, but I also don't care for it. Um, but I think it's actually, um, it actually sort of makes sense uh, because it it is the the most the the most of something but that doesn't mean that that's the something that i want um for instance this is a weird equivalency i don't know why i'm going back here maybe it's because it's the halloween season and sweets are on my mind the very first time i ever had uh peanut butter pie uh was also one of the last times when i was a child and it was the most peanut buttery thing that i could possibly imagine having and if you are a fan of peanut butter it was probably heaven uh, it was too much for me. It was not for me. I enjoy it in little sample sizes, I guess. Reese's Pieces, peanut butter cups. But I do not want that much peanut butter. I do not want this much Dero Argento. Um, and now we don't need to rehash the tropes or uh, the elements of a giallo film. We've sort of 
done that in, in the past two episodes, so that's kind of well-trodden ground. And if you are, have been following this series, then you are from as familiar with it as I am, if not arguably more so, I'd say. Um, and... But, but, but I think what makes opera the exemplary one is it has all those elements. You know, it has the the POV stuff, the the late killer reveal, all, all those sort of things. Electric score, only this time Brian Eno is providing a lot of it. It has all of that stuff. But what makes this one, maybe not elevated, uh, but, but I guess what makes this one the best example of all that is I think... And I've been struggling with how I'm how I'm trying to to uh, express this or convey this, but it is the one that uh, in this three, the Cat of Nine Tales phenomenon and opera, it is the one which is the most um, coherent uh, in regards to all these elements all sort of fit together evenly and organically. There's sort of a flow to everything. Um, and, and none of the elements seem gratuitous. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that none of the elements seem obscene. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Um, but, 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 but mostly in, in sort of how the cinematic language of sort of everything that he does, uh, Dara Argento does, in how he uh, uses the camera in uh, the performances and how he uses the script to kind of eventually... Uh, get to the point and all of those elements of a giallo film are all sort of in there and they all work together to make a smoothly flowing giallo film I, I mean it's sort of like if if i was uh you know if i was my you know in my 30s like i am now but back in the 1980s and i was a giallo fan when this movie came out i would have sort of i i would have declared it probably a, a giallo masterpiece everything works together in the way that a giallo film is supposed to work together. And without without the weird sort of either technical or stylistic hiccups. Um, if you think of... Um, I feel bad. I keep kind of going back to... In my mind, keep going back to phenomena as the, the ways that things didn't work. But that is... In, in comparison to the Cat of Nine Tales, I think Phenomena is a, a lesser film. But in Phenomena, you had sort of specific giallo elements which drew attention to themselves. I'm thinking of the the girl uh, at the very beginning of the film, the, the first victim and her slow motion head through the glass thing. Like it seems really, not gaudy, but excessive, uh, unnecessary, sort of like, there was a lot of elements in that film which sort of seemed like, well, we're checking off a list of like, we got this, we got this, we got this, and it was, and it, it felt like a very uneven film. Also a film in which the, a monkey saves a day, let's not forget that. Um, and then plus even technical things such as um, depending on which version you were watching, it, it jumping in and out of uh, Italian dubs for some reason. Um, there, there's none of that in opera. All the elements kind of fit together organically in a smooth, sort of, like I said, coherent way. Um, the killer reveal at the end sort of makes sense and comes at the right time. The 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 gore, well, not even gore, but the kills are um, kind of a, a, a 
marvel of of the you know technical achievement at the time, especially the the gunshot through the eyes is was actually quite admirable. Um, but the way and the way that the the story keeps you guessing and, and all that sort of stuff, like it, it is a very well made, a great example of a Jalo film. Um, and to to kind of elaborate on that, I, I want to talk a little bit about a little more in depth about the positives of the film because they are outweighed in my mind by sort of what I did not care for. But I want to start with the positives of it. And a lot of that has to do with sort of, as I've been talking, sort of how the film looks and feels and kind of comes together. And I think that starts with uh, the the cinematography by, I, I believe it's Ronnie Taylor is his name. I, I forgot to look it up. Um, but the, you know... He was the the cinematographer uh, the cinematographer that uh, won an Oscar for shooting Gandhi. Uh, yep, Ronnie Taylor is his name. And on top of shooting Gandhi, he also was a camera operator on uh, Star Wars Episode Four. He was a camera operator on Barry Lyndon. Clearly, this guy knows what it is to shoot a good film, a, a great film. Um, not just how to make it look good, but how the shots all have to sort of fit together. How um, how how to shoot for an edit. Uh, so that cutting does not seem distracting, but how you are using all these visual elements of cinema to kind of make the story flow and tell a coherent story, because opera is not the longest of the films that I have watched for uh, um, Dare Argento, but it's not the shortest one either. Um, and, and, and the other two, at times, sort of felt long because of sequences that were thrown in or because of how like we didn't get out of a scene soon enough or how scenes kind of seem to drag along opera doesn't have that problem um and and it starts with a a spectacle i mean they they shot this film on super 35 uh it's it's displayed in this absolutely gorgeous uh 2.35 to 1 aspect ratio so you kind of see the world and it seems like argento is using a lot more wide lenses and a lot more wide shots in this movie, kind of including groups in it more, and there's not such a claustrophobic sense, but by incorporating sort of a camera, which is always, not always, but is moving a lot on like a, a maybe it's a steady cam or maybe it's a dolly, but how, uh, I'm thinking of the, this, the one of the opening scenes when before um, our, our protagonist, Betty, is it Betty? Let me just make sure that. Yep, Betty. Before she comes on stage to start singing "Lady Macbeth" for the very first time, um, and you see you're seeing the crew behind the curtain and everything, and you're, the camera's kind of moving, and you're seeing the stage manager go from one person to the next to the next, and you're kind of introducing us to the cast of characters that we're going to kind of familiarize ourselves with. It's not only an interesting way and a very clever way to introduce our characters, but it's also, in my mind, based on how we've sort of seen. Uh, the killer's, uh, the initial entryway uh, of the killer into the story through this this claustrophobic, narrow sort of POV, by which this film does have in spades, of course, but by introducing all these characters in conjunction with these shots from the stage from behind the characters, sort of seeing this wide open theater and this big world, it kind of plants a seed in your mind of the killer could be anyone out there, could be any one of these people. And rather than create a a sense of claustrophobia, 
it creates instead sort of a, a sense of unease of being out in the open. Uh, this idea of sort of being by yourself is sort of the safe place, but being in this group out in this world is the dangerous situation to be in. Um, and, I, and I really like that because even though there is, yes, the POV shots of, of the killer in the very beginning, he, you know, he's up in that uh, one of the private booths, removed from that, you do kind of just, I, I got the sense of like, it, it could be anyone. It could be any one of these people that we're about to meet. Um, and I, I found that to be uh, very interesting. And of, and of course, then with the, you know, with the way that he, that he shoots everything, you kind of do kind of get a sense of awe of the theater, of this world that, that uh, Argento is, is trying to um, create. Um, and then, of course, uh, with that, in conjunction with these these standard uh, giallo tropes of of the the POV of the killer, of him kind of looking down at her from uh, a distance, and, and all these um, a focus on the eye and people looking at things, um, the themes of voyeurism and objectivity are are very clear, and they've always been a signature of giallo films. But in this one, it's sort of done the most refined and simplistic yet effective sort of ways without having to necessarily focus a lot on close-ups of like an unblinking eye. It has those. Most of the times they come from these ravens, and I have to say the ravens were one of the most annoying aspects of this film, just their constant squawking and how the, the frenetic cutting in their scenes. It was very, very obnoxious to me. But um, without having to necessarily cut back and forth between a... a a uh, a shot of the killer's eye and seeing like oh, get it he's looking at her like we 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 knew that already but this idea of of looking and of objectifying and of being voyeuristic um it, it ties in with this idea the killer could be anyone where you you kind of see that um it's not just that we see the killer looking at her uh but even when you see the um when you see the the uh, Marco, the theater director, when after Betty comes on stage and you see him kind of in awe of her, it's like all these people, uh, like Betty in this elevated state, um, figuratively and literally kind of up there in front of everyone, she is an object. Everyone is taking some type of pleasure and delight in her, whether that's sort of a psychosexual way like the killer or... Um, sort of a, a fan admiral, uh, admiration sort of way, this idea of objectivity and how the positive and the negative about that is, 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 is such a thin line between those two, that I found to be very interesting. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and one of the things that touches on it, uh, I, you know, once again, I'm going to go back to my snooty film articles. I found this article uh, from a venue called Cinephilia and Beyond, it's called uh, Dario Argento's Subversive Opera by Paul Sinat, I believe is the name. And once again, as always, I will be posting this article on the Facebook page if you want to read it. Um, but in regards to these, this thing that I'm talking about, uh, the eye and voyeurism and, and objectivity and, and how the cinematic language works together, he has this to say. Um, Looking at the intricate editing of murder set pieces in Deep Red and Opera, we see a precise and meaningful strategy. Betty's assistant, Mia, is killed by a bullet through the eye, trying to clearly see the mysterious policeman through the door's spy hole. Seeing clearly seems to be the recurring theme of this film. Few directors can realize a scene such as this with such an assured control of montage. And I have to give him credit for that. That scene is done so effectively where um, 
allegedly there's a police officer there who is watching over Betty because of the murder that she witnessed earlier, but she's got drops in her eyes so she can't really see. So when someone is banging on the door, we're not really sure, like, okay, is is this the, the police officer? He, he's certainly showing us his identification through the, through the people, but we can't really see. And there is this sense of, is she safe or is she not? There's this paranoia thing, and it is done um, remarkably well. Um, but then where I, I start, where are my thoughts start diverging from, I would say, uh, this article and the critical consensus is um, it, it's not necessarily the execution of, of Jalo elements, which I find to be upsetting and off-putting. It's more the who is at the, the, the center, the focus of them, and what is the reason why. Um, and specifically when it comes to this article, I, I start to disagree more because then this article starts to compare opera to Peeping Tom, which I greatly disagree with, um, because, well, because then in the very next paragraph he says, sadly, the majority of horror films strictly, uh, I'm sorry, sadly, the majority of horror films satisfy more conventional expectations and desires. The need to see people being mutilated and killed is one. A voyeuristic and sadistic perspective guides bad horror films. We do not feel vulnerable or displaced. We hardly feel anything at all. The point seems to be to wallow in perversion and destruction. Argento's work allows us to experience a more vulnerable and masochistic gaze. This feeling of unease is experienced through the on-screen victim's eyes. I disagree. Um, the alleged bad horror films that he is talking about, which uh, you know, uh, which have a voyeuristic and sadistic perspective, um, in which uh, you know people feel the need to see other people being mutilated and killed. I, I think opera is one of those films that he's describing, and uh, the 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 reason that I think that is is because of and I and I, I brought this up in Phenomena, but how women are used, I guess. Our protagonist of this film is a woman called Betty, who at the beginning is very nervous and scared because she's the understudy. She's only uh, thrust into the spotlight because the the star is killed, and, and we know, of course, that she is uh, killed and hit by a car because the our, the eventual killer wanted to put Betty in the spotlight. It was it was manufactured that way. So she's she feels she's too young for the role. She's not. She doesn't feel like she's ready. She feels like she might be rejected. So of course, at the beginning, she is very scared. But she never really comes out of that figure being scared. And I'm not saying it's not right for our our woman protagonist to be scared. I mean, she witnesses her her stage manager friend boyfriend kind of butchered right in front of her, but she never becomes anything other than this scared screaming frightful person she's reactionary she is not proactive she has to have everything done for her she is not a strong protagonist and it's that with the combination of what the killer subjects her to and why and listen you have a woman whether it's a protagonist or supporting character or even just maybe an extra in a horror film there is women are going to die in horror films men are going to die in horror films people in horror films are going to die but 
the sadism that's directed towards Betty and the style in which it is executed really was off-putting to me. For instance, the... I, I would say, I, I think you could argue that the the most brutal violence is directed towards men in this. Uh, the, the stabbing of, of Betty's stagehand friend, um, that's pretty brutal, and it's kind of just like repeated stabs over and over again. Um, and then the crow, or I'm sorry, the raven sort of pecking at the eyes repeatedly of the uh, detective who turns out to be the killer at the end. Those are the most viscerally brutal uh, in regards to what we see and the sort of effects around them. But in regards to the more obscene ones, I'd say it's the the costume designer who accidentally swallows a necklace somehow and it has to be cut out of her and the killer reaches in it and pulls the necklace out of her. And then also this idea of forcing Betty to watch these people that she cares about murdered in front of her it's not misogynistic, I don't think, not on purpose, but it is sort of mean-spirited, uh, especially when you think that the ultimate motivation behind it is because of a warped, misplaced sexuality that is handed to the killer, that the killer inherits because of Betty's mom, and there's supposed to be, especially with these visions Betty has, there's supposed to be this parallel, sort of something that's connecting Betty with the killer, as, as this article says. Effectively, the spectator connects the thoughts of Betty and the mystery killer, and the resolution of the story reveals there is a connection between them after all. I mean, a narrative connection, yes, but the, the I think we're also supposed to believe there's some type of emotional connection and from what i understand there was a maybe not an alternate ending but an original an idea for the ending or another idea for ending that they obviously didn't shoot or go with was um after killing the 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 murderer betty sort of realizes she that she is actually that she was connected to him that she that she was attracted to him and to what he did and, and this sort of thing and and i guess it's just what am i trying to say here The, hmm, I think it's just, I, I had a discussion with my girlfriend a little bit about this last night, that you could even argue that violence against women is sort of a, a horror trope in and of itself. I mean, um, if you want to accept or, or, or believe that, you know, film has been a male-dominated thing since its inception, that at some point... Um, you know, this idea of the last girl or the virginal girl, this all came from, stemmed from some type of patriarchal society. Um, and so there, I don't know, it's just, there's a masochism that is directed towards our woman protagonist because of something sexual it's a power thing as any type of uh physical abuse the most extreme being raped it's, it's about power 
And now I'm not saying that uh, a, a, a man, a bad man uh, abusing a person or a woman because of some type of sexual obsession and twisted psychology. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist. I'm, I guess I'm just wondering, but why does it have to be here? Why do we have to, to, to watch it? I, I mean, I guess if... Um, a Jalo film is sort of like the best kind of Jalo films are sort of existing to get you from like set piece to set piece um, of, of of violence and gore and pulpiness. If that's what Jalo is for, then then fine. But then you have to admit that this one, each set piece is trying to get you to is the next emotionally torture moment for Betty. And now it's not just that, but but I will have to say that like yes, I'm just I'm done, <clears throat> I'm just so done, <clears throat> excuse me, um, with movies that sort of have a <clears throat> a woman sort of being tortured at the center of it, at the center of it, and we're supposed to relate to her because of that. I mean. I, I'm I'm just done with that. I'm tired of that as a trope of of. of um, of that, and, and that's, I admit, I admit that's entirely a personal thing, uh, I, I just, I'm not sure, there's nothing about it that interests me, and I, I'm, I'm just so, on the one hand, I'm just sort of done with that sort of thing, but then on the other hand, it's not just that, but it's also, the, so the scene in which Betty watches her, I guess it's her boyfriend, murdered in front of her horrific of course it's going to scar you but then the scene that comes immediately after that when marco picks her up there's not a discussion of the murder that comes a little bit later she doesn't say what she saw she doesn't immediately call the police she doesn't even tell marco about the murder what happens instead what transpires instead is a discussion about their sex life in which Marco admits, like, sure, of course he jerks off before a film shoot. And when they have this kind of almost flirtatious, light, airy conversation about how, well, you know, the legend or, or the rumor is that all Sopranos are sluts. That's the conversation that immediately comes after her watching her friend being horrifically murdered in front of her. This is a horrific psychologically traumatic event and what does our our co-writer do but then um, follows it up immediately with a discussion of her being a sexual object a light-hearted one i should say the discussion of the murder doesn't come until after that i just think that's such a poor treatment of what transpired of the material of the character and now this article that I quoted sort of um, has you believe, or, 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 or hypothesize, I should say, that that's a little bit too cynical on my part, but sort of hypothesizes that um, there is something deeply psychosexual about this movie, but, it, but <clears throat> nothing that I've seen in these past three films has led me to believe that 
there's that anything that's much deeper to Argento's usage of women than just sort of to fulfill something pulpy and visceral. It, it, it's just there's so many bad decisions. Not even I, I don't even want to say made by the character because the bad decisions are written by Dario Argento and and his his co-writer. So he just felt there was something appropriate by following up this horrific murder that should be psychologically traumatizing with a light-hearted sexual conversation. And that signals to me, and you feel free to disagree with me, that signals to me that who your character, your main character is, is a, is a sex object. Not just to the killer, that's made clear, but to, to you as the creator as well. And, and there, there's little things as well, like the, the weird dialogue, you know, that it just like how, not, not how people talk, like sort of just, it, it seems to accentuate that to me that I don't necessarily think Argento is a misogynist, but that he doesn't really know how to treat his women characters more than just the object of someone's gaze, an admirable gaze, a horrific gaze, a, a, a twisted sexual gaze. That's what his characters, his, his women characters are. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm not interested in that i'm 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 done with that uh, i'm i i don't i don't care for it so technically opera is quite a phenomenal work but emotionally it's it's just not something that i resonate with it's just not something that i particularly care for and and i i think uh Comparing it to, to Peeping Tom is certainly, in my mind, a little bit hyperbolic. Peeping Tom is a, is, does deal with uh, psychosexuality and how trauma can affect somebody. Uh, but it's done much better in Peeping Tom. You get a much clearer sense of how the trauma of an adult, uh, a parent specifically, can have a an adverse, twisting psychological effect on the child. Whereas just these random flashes of, you know, Betty seeing her mom and, and involved in something weird and some kind of death, that's supposed to explain to us why the killer is the way he is and why he views her daughter as this object. And it's... I don't want to necessarily say that it's psychologically not true. I mean, it's not, but this is also a movie. This is not a, 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 a scientific journal that we're going through here. But it's just so cheap. And it's just a device used to, in the world of the film, give a reason to why our killer has this twisted obsession and enacts this violence against this woman. Because it's one thing to, you know, and, and, and I, uh, I, I think of the recent, of David Gordon Green's Halloween sequel that came out recently. That's a horror film in which many people die. Men and women die. Young and old die. 
but it's indiscriminate. Michael Myers is indiscriminate in his killing. There's a child who is killed. His father is killed. There's a teenage girl who is killed. Her boyfriend is killed. It's just you're in Michael Myers' way. You're going to die. But this one is just, there's an intention. It's not just killing. It's, it's psychological torture. It's the torture. It's, it's opera's a film where our, our, <clears throat> our main character, our woman character, is tortured for a reason which is cheap and doesn't seem to ring true. And so I would argue that, yes, it's, it's voyeuristic and it's objective, but it is still a film um, in which we desire to see the mutilation. We, des we desire to see the killing because there's not much to the character to really connect to. And that's kind of why, you know, once again, why I think it, it is probably his best directed of the three, uh, but also sort of signifying to me at the end of the day, Argento is probably just not for me. Um... That's not to say, once again, that, that's not to say that if you're into his films, if you're into this one, I, I'm not going to begrudge you for that. I, I don't intend to make this episode to say, here's why you shouldn't like it. Just, once again, here's why I didn't like it. Here's why I didn't resonate with it. I'm just not interested in this kind of stuff anymore. Um, your, your film can be as technically cool as, as anything, but when, you're, when it's sort of this hollow, I'm, I'm just... I'm not, I'm not on board with it. Um, Opera is uh, free to stream for Prime members. Uh, if you don't have Prime membership, then you can rent it or purchase it through Amazon uh, or iTunes. Um, and that does it for Opera. That does it for Dario Argento. That does it for the month of October. Um, which means that soon after you were listening to this episode, or, or I should say soon after this episode has been posted, it will be November. It will be a new month, which means there will be a new theme and there will be a new guest. And at least I can say this time, haha, that I have both of those things locked down. Uh, joining me for November will be Gavin Mevius of the Mixed Reviews podcast. Uh, Gavin, if you remember, has, uh, is a friend of the show, has been on before. The last time he was on was um, around this time... Not last year, I don't know, two years ago? Anyway, the last time he was on, it was, uh, it was uh, for October. He, he, was, he was recommending the uh, Universal Classics monster movies to me. He, it was uh, um, two different, uh, two, it was pairings for each one, which, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then uh, he was uh, initially a guest talking about Juan Carwai, and I've told him this many times, but to this day overwhelmingly the introduction to Juan Carwai is the most downloaded episode in my podcast history and it's not even close <laughs> I don't know why that is but even even when I was on my hiatus for a year it was still getting so many downloads and I and I don't know why um I would like to believe that it's because uh because Gavin is actually quite a famous pop culture figure in uh East Asia um and then I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to do much more research on it. But Gavin will be on to talk about uh, Ealing Comedies, which uh, Ealing was a studio in um, in uh, Britain in, uh, I think, the 40s to the 50s, and uh, is basically sort of a, a forerunner for um, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of 
comedy genres, a lot of actors, as Gavin introduced me to it, if you didn't have the Ealing comedies, uh, you don't really have Alec Guinness as a very popular cinematic figure. So, And also, listen, the world is garbage and trash right now uh, in many ways, so it's just going to be have... It's going to be good to have something to laugh at, to kind of take some pressure off, to just release some stress, um, especially coming after uh, a dark <laughs> um, theme such as Argento and Giallo films uh, to begin with. So that's going to be uh, next month. Gavin will be joining me to discuss Ealing Comedies. Episode's going to be a little bit later uh, than normal just because of uh, schedules to sync up. Um, in order to get together to record this, it's it's going to have to be a little bit later. So uh, don't freak out uh, if you don't see your feed populating uh, when it normally does Tuesday or Wednesday. That's just, uh, unfortunately, that's how the cookie crumbles. Um, but that's that. So, of course, I always want to hear what you have to say about my episodes, about the films I cover, anything. You can shoot me an email at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Uh, chime in in the comments field at battleshipretention.com in the podcast drop-down menu. Just find I Do Movies Badly. Uh, I do movies badly.podbean.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. So that does it. Um, but hopefully you were listening to this um, on or around uh, Halloween. I guess I kind of didn't leave much of a choice for that. So I hope everybody has a happy, safe, and healthy Halloween. Um, if you are going to parties, if you're taking little ones out trick-or-treating, if you are out uh, trick-or-treating yourself, be safe, have a good time. I am not one of those people that um, adheres to this myth of um, candy injected with something or razor blades and apples. That is stupid. That's fear-mongering. Um, but, you know, I am a proponent of look both ways before you cross the street. Um, don't necessarily go somewhere that is uh, dimly lit. And uh, certainly be sure to stay away from drunk people because lord knows we have enough about there but i love this time of year i hope you love this time of year i hope you have enjoyed this month these uh podcast episodes i hope you've enjoyed dare argento just because i didn't necessarily get into it doesn't mean that i hope you didn't i hope you enjoyed all of this i hope you had fun i hope everyone has a happy and safe halloween and then of course um because it's going to be a little bit later um that i'm recording with gavin by uh, the time that episode is, is recorded and posted, it will be past election day. So I want to say November 6th, everybody, get out there and vote. I am also not a proponent or supporter of this idea that one vote doesn't matter because um, one person who sits home, eh, my vote doesn't matter. You multiply that by thousands, you have tens of thousands of people who think their vote doesn't matter, and it does. Um, I... Uh, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear if you listen to me talk, I am a, a progressive person. I am uh, deeply supportive of a, of a blue wave in this political era. Um, if that loses me friends or listeners, whatever, hashtag sorry, not sorry, I guess. But um, it is so important that you get out there and vote right now, not just because of what is at stake in regards to retaking the House, retaking the Senate, all that kind of stuff, but because voting is a right and a privilege that you have as guaranteed by the Constitution of this country, you should always be exercising as much as possible because it is one source of power and influence that you as just a regular person have. Um, please get out there and vote. 
Um, I know that there's some really cool stuff going on. Um, Uber and, and, and Lyft, I believe, are doing a thing where if you can't get to a, a polling location, they will take you for free. Um, if you are having problems with registration, I mean, there's so much stuff out there. If you get there and someone, if you live in, in, in a, a state or a city or a town where there's, uh, people are clamping down on trying to get you to vote, you can always ask for a provisional ballot. That is your right and exercise your rights, people. This is so important. Um, there's so much on, on, on the line and at stake here. Go out and vote November 6th. Go out tomorrow night, October 31st. Have a wonderful Halloween. Hype yourself up with a sugar rush and then walk into a polling place on, on uh, November 6th and vote. But that does it for me. Uh, whew, coming down off my high horse now. Um, thank you for listening, as always. Be sure to tune in next week where I will be talking to Gavin Mevius about Ealing comedies and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.